Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to The History of England, episode 304, The Seeds of Nationhood. Before we start, I have another podcast recommendation for you. And this one is from the Agora podcast stable, and I lay it in front of you, partly because the subject has surely to be the most exotic ever, namely Egyptology, which has a ring about it, don't you think? And also because the presentation of the podcast is superb. So, this is The History of Egypt by Dominic Perry. Now, if you're looking at impact in terms of years, the History of Egypt podcast covers more than 3,000 years of history, from the moment the gods created the universe, which is, you know, a while ago, to the death of Cleopatra and beyond. Dominic is a trained Egyptologist, and he uses ancient texts, art and archaeology to build its stories. Of course, there's all the pyramids, tombs and treasures, but this is more than a history of the pharaohs, it also reveals fascinating and heartfelt tales of real people living real lives. The History of Egypt is available everywhere on our podcatcher near you, or you can go to Dominic's website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com. Give it a go. And don't forget the History of England shop, by the way, at the History of England website. Annual membership for friends makes the perfect Christmas present. Last time we ended with the arrival of a new Viceroy of Ireland, Henry Sidney, in 1566. Sidney was already an experienced politician, had cut his administrative teeth at the Council of Wales, and had come to Ireland with Sussex, whose deputy he had been. 
Sidney had strong connections at the English court and had aligned himself very closely with Dudley. I care not in regard of any subject or enemy in England, but would be accounted a feather in your wing and a principal one too, he wrote, which is a lovely sentiment, but it was to turn out to be a something of a disadvantage. Just as factionism had done for Sussex and hastened his recall, Sidney was to face the same problem in spades. Dudley favoured the Fitzgeralds, earls of Kildare and Desmond, and wanted to cast his protective wing over them. The Queen, meanwhile, rather favoured the Geraldine's traditional rival, the butlers, earls of Ormond, in the form of Black Tom Butler. The Ormonds, of course, had Boleyn blood, and Tom Butler was well known to the Queen and to the court. Sidney, though, was very conscious and determined that as Viceroy in Ireland, he must be non-partisan. Court politics in England was to make this very difficult and contribute towards a later rebellion. So, once Shane O'Neill's head had been pickled by the Scots, Sidney sought to pursue the policy laid out so clearly by Sussex to extend the shiring of England and introduced English-style administration. But before he could embark on this, his peace was disturbed by what has been described as the last private war in Ireland, which suitably enough came between the Earls of Desmond and Ormond in an argument over titles and right to land in Limerick, Tipperary and Kilkenny. So in 1565, Desmond took the law into his own hand and tried to distrain land west of Waterford. This was too much for Ormond, who gathered his own army and met the Desmonds in battle and gave them a thorough beating and captured the Earl of Desmond. Now, if you happen to be an early modern monarch, you have set your face against the idea of private battles in your realm. As far as you are concerned, the state has a monopoly of violence, formerly operated in accordance with the law, but, you know, if not, well, needs must when the devil drives. So, Ormond and Desmond indulging in a private bust-up was very much not cricket. Both were summoned to court in England, there to be duly carpeted. Both agreed to keep the peace, but the Queen's preference for the Ormond case was quite clear, and Desmond was therefore twice discomfited, beaten in battle by Ormond, now feeling that his rival stood in higher respect in the English court. On their return, though, in travelling through Ireland, Sidney soon had evidence of the instability and disputes even in Ormond's own lands, where the Earl's brothers exercised authority with a very high hand, and the Earls of Clan Rickard carried out a succession dispute of such violence that Sidney found Galway a town of war, frontiering upon an enemy rather than a civil town in a country under a sovereign. Sidney was convinced that pacification and anglicisation of the administration would come only with the English controlling it, and thus came the proposal to establish presidencies in Munster and Connacht. But in Munster, court politics trumped Sidney again when his nominee as president was recalled by the Queen. The result was a further discomfited Earl living in Munster who was, you guessed it, the already twice discomfited Earl of Desmond, and a power vacuum until a president arrived. For Desmond, 
All of this was way too much, and he carried on the violence against the Ormonds despite his promises to Elizabeth. He was accused of causing £20,000 worth of damage through his raids. Being in default of his agreement with Elizabeth, he was hauled off to captivity in the Tower of London until finally released in 1573. Into this situation now came the first Elizabethan adventurers in Ireland. Together, these kind of new arrivals threatened the very basis of the power of the Irish lords, Old English as much as anyone, with claims to title on their land or innovations that would threaten their local dominance. Sidney's proposed President of Munster, Warham St Ledger, he claimed land in Cork, as did Richard Grenville of later fame of the Revenge, a schoolboy story of naval obduracy some of you might know. Humphrey Gilbert was another one, proposing to build a town on the West Cork coast. But the most worrying example was one Peter Carew, a Devonian. Carew put claims together based on land titles going back to Henry II, would you believe, in County Carlow, and he seemed to get support for his antiquated claims. These were in fact on lands held by Ormond's brother, Edmund Butler. When the Butlins duly rebelled in 1569, they did not do so against the Queen, they said, but against those that banish Ireland and mean conquest, by which they meant this new breed of Elizabethan adventurer. Munster then rose in revolt in 1560 as well. In the absence of Desmond, it was led by a Fitzgerald kinsman called Fitzmorris. Fitzmorris sought a new religious note, declaring that the Queen was trying to force the Irish to forsake the Catholic faith by God unto his church given, and by the sea of Rome, hereto prescribed to all Christian men. The revolt, though, was soon over. The Earl of Ormond returned by August 1569 and submitted to Sydney, who arrived in the province with 600 men. Ormond was joined by Desmond's half-brother, along with the constable of the Desmond Gallowglasses, Rory McSheehy. Fitzmaurice fled to pursue a guerrilla war until 1571. Humphrey Gilbert, better known to English history as an explorer, was charged with pacifying Munster after the rebellion, which he did with tragic savagery and enormous ruthlessness. He set out as a matter of policy to terrify the Irish into submission. He refused to recognise the rebels through direct or indirect contact and would give no one protection unless they first submitted to him and swore an oath to the Queen and entered into pledges of good behaviour. According to Thomas Churchyard, those who did submit to Gilbert had to approach him through a lane marked by decapitated heads. Sir Walter Raleigh was his half-brother, and would assert that he never heard nor read of any man more feared than Gilbert is among the Irish nation. Fitzmaurice and his rebellion received some encouragement in 1570 with the excommunication of Elizabeth, which also had the effect of equating Catholicism with rebellion in the English mind. And so, despite continuing to take a softly, softly line as regards Reformation in Ireland, confessional lines were, as in England, drawn more clearly. But in the face of a new English captain, John Perrott, Fitzmaurice eventually submitted in January 1572, and in 1575 he fled to France.
Sidney, meanwhile, has turned his hand towards advancing the course of administration, and he turned to good old traditional methods to do so, namely, calling a parliament, also in 1569. Among the many bills were two in particular. The first was the attainder of Shane O'Neill. Now, I can hear you muttering again, as you sometimes do, that surely there was no need for an attainder after all. O'Neill had been declared a traitor and an outlaw, and his lands were forfeit anyway. Ah, but I say unto you, the Bill of Attainder included a preamble that sought to resolve the Shane O'Neill conundrum, that conflict between the Gaelic view of land ownership by the Sept and English law. So, the preamble gave us all a bit of history, a bit of history so far-fetched that it relied on Geoffrey of Monmouth's books, and possibly even Geoffrey might have blushed in his grave. The story went that the original settlers of Ireland had been given permission to do so by their own lord, Germundus, who just happened also to be king of the Britons in their entirety. So Ireland, it turned out, had actually always been subject to England. It's just that they hadn't asserted their right for some time, and in the meantime, all these nefarious Gaelic practices had sprung up, now to be banished. So, in a stroke, the problem of competing laws was cancelled, deleted by prior English right. The other law of note was one to banish coin and livery. Now this was absolutely nuclear, not only for the Gaelic lords, but also for the old English of the Pale, the heartland of English power. The ability to tax and make arbitrary impositions on the people and maintain a retinue and household was the very foundation of Irish lordship. If this went, what would be left? The proposal was fiercely resisted in the Commons of the Irish Parliament and would eventually fail, and with it went a major plank of the attempt to introduce a public administration based on the English model and public taxation. Sidney went back to England after his first term in Ireland in 1571, but returned as Viceroy for a second stint in 1575 and would try again in a different way. This time he introduced an idea called composition. So the idea was that instead of the various impositions and taxes imposed by the Crown, which went by the name of Cess, each of the Lords would make a private accommodation with the Viceroy and agree a sum that they would pay to the Crown after they had gathered all the taxes from their people. In return, they'd be confirmed in all their tenurial titles and be given a discount on what they owed. It was an idea of some genius, actually. The composition would be used in the local administration then and to fund a small armed local force at the disposal of the president or English governor. And some of the lords did see the benefit of the reform, the introduction of some certainty and assured income. Finally, the shires would also have the means to make themselves a reality. Once again, though, Resistance was fierce, mainly again from the Pale and from the towns, driven at least in part by the New English. Because although composition offered real potential for progress in administration, it was in essence taxation without representation, a tax designed, agreed and gathered by the Crown through their Viceroy, not by Parliament. Although it was then revived by a later governor in 1581-4, the same John Perrot we've met in Munster, the idea founded on that principle. 
who focused a lot on policy as defined by viceroys of Ireland, Sussex and Sydney, who for all their sometimes brutal military action were at least administrators and courtiers at heart. It's been noted of Sydney, for example, that he worked to develop the infrastructure in Dublin to support the Irish Privy Council and the law courts. I should not give the impression, however, that policy in Ireland was not also a constant focus of attention in Westminster, because it was, and it generated reams of papers and discussions and maps. At the centre of the discussions were Cecil and Walsingham, preparing proposals and reports for the Privy Council. One of the areas of increasing focus was the idea of plantation, the colonisation of English settlers into Ireland. Most of the schemes that were advanced and taken forward were done so from England, not from the Irish Viceroy. And this meant that the Irish Viceroys were very rarely in favour of the proposals and rarely active supporters. Very often the schemes were implemented over their heads, worked against their aims and messed up relationships and politics for them and thereby detracted from their authority. It's easy, I suppose, to think of Ireland as being very separate from English politics and the court, but as you can see it's not really the case. Court, politics, were constantly playing a part. Policy emanated from Westminster and complaints and information went back from Ireland and the Irish, and not just from the likes of Shane O'Neill, but from the old English of the Pale. Many of their complaints led directly to the recall of Sussex, for example. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The idea of plantation was not new by Elizabethan times. They had been tried before. For in the 1520s, there had been a lot of concern about violence and rebellion on the borders of the Pale in the counties of Leash and Offaly. Plans were finally put forward under Edward VI for a plantation of English. The idea was to introduce populations loyal to the English crown, but also, in the English view, to develop greater productivity in agriculture, and thereby to also help the Irish population as they saw it. Key to this is again the failure of the English to understand the Irish culture and economy based on cattle. Many English commentators simply saw the Irish way of life as barbarous and indeed of reform. The most honest of them, such as John Davies, the Irish Attorney General, conceded that the problem also lay in English governance. That ever since our nation had any footing in this land, the state of England did earnestly desire to perfect the conquest of this kingdom, but that in every page there were found such impediments and defects in both realms as caused almost an impossibility. The worst, by contrast, were men like John Mead, who believed that the Irish deserved the terror inflicted on them as punishment for rebellion and religion. In 1550, then, government officials carried out a survey of lands in Leash 
and Offaly with the idea of a plantation of English there. They placed restrictions on land that could be taken from local families such as the O'Moores and the O'Connor. And then grants were issued to settlers, 29 in Leash and 11 in Offaly, to a group of English and Welsh, to some Old English and even to native Irish and Scottish Galloglass families, so quite a mix. The settlers were required to provide arms for themselves and for their tenants. There was a deal of confusion about the terms, so in 1557 Mary reformed the system, trying to remove native Irish, setting the rent and establishing the two forts of Maryburg and Philipstown. In that very year, though, the plantations effectively failed, pushed out by the native Irish. The plantations there, however, were revived in the 1560s, with twice the number of settlers than the original one, and half of those were Catholic soldiers. Once again, violence came periodically to those plantations. They faced attacks from local families led by Rory Ugo Moore. The rebellion was boosted by the rebellion in Munster in the later 1570s and 1580s, and desperate settlers tried to offload their estates. Nonetheless, some stayed, and with greater peace in the early 17th century, even began to thrive, as was revealed by a report of 1622, which noted that this plantation in the king's and queen's counties, as it was well begun, so it hath prosperously continued, and is for the most part well built and peopled by the English, and a great strength in the country. However, the thrifty stroke mean Elizabeth delete as applicable, rather focused on the fact that these plantation schemes cost a bomb. So, the strategy in the 1570s changed somewhat with the idea of what might be called private plantations. So the idea was that the Crown would make a grant of land to an individual, who would then go and drive out the local upper classes, retaining the peasantry as tenants. So, a bit like the Norman Conquest in England, I guess, Billy with his men given titles and told to go get... The first effort, though, was a good deal less successful than Billy had been in England. The recipient was Thomas Smith, a classical scholar and member of the English Privy Council, who had written much on Ireland. Smith drew on the idea of the Romans as both civilisers and colonisers. English colonisers, he wrote, had responsibility to lead forth Colonia to people the country with civil men brought up in the law of England and he believed that his colony in the Ards in Ulster would be a centre for defence, then of civilisation and trade. Smith's grant, though, was almost unbelievably poorly designed, even putting aside our modern objections to the very concept of colonisation. The Ards were claimed by one Brian MacFeelan, an O'Neill who had been consistently loyal to the English crown and one of their strongest supporters in the region. The plantation seemed designed to torch that remaining positive relationship with the local lords. Brian reacted with savage fury, Smith's son was killed, and their hundred settlers killed or driven out by 1574. This was followed, though, by a much more extensive project, with the grant in 1572 of a vast area encompassing most of Antrim to a man called Walter Devereux, Earl of Essex, father of the Queen's later favourite Robert Devereux and husband of a lady called Lettice Knowles we'll hear about next week. 
Essex was to provide 1,200 fighting men to make good his claim to the land, with the rights of the incumbent O'Neills, MacDonalds and MacKillians completely ignored. Slightly feebly, Elizabeth stipulated that the native Irish be well treated, for which I suppose the gentlest of responses is a hollow laugh. In the long run, Essex got no further than Smith, really. He was, of course, resisted by most of the local Irish lords, with one interesting exception. Even the current Earl of Tyrone, Tulo Lenich, avoided Essex and provided no assistance. The only real help came from the Baron of Dungannon, one Hugh O'Neill. Interesting, because we'll meet Hugh again in a very different context, and he's proof of the point I made last time that many of the Irish lords started with a desire to reach accommodation with the English before being driven into rebellion. Apart from that, Essex received little and unenthusiastic support from the Viceroy, one Fitzwilliam at the time. The Irish lords claimed that they resisted not against the Queen, but to defend their own lands and goods, and swore that this couldn't be rebellion, since if it had been the Queen's war, she would have sent the Viceroy, not the Earl of Essex. In his desperation, Essex turned to atrocity. In 1574, invited to parley at Castlereagh by Brian MacPhelan, he instead attacked him and killed between 100 and 200 of their retainers, took two of Brian's relations to the castle at Carrickfergus and had them executed, while Brian himself was executed in Dublin. Essex's viciousness was heightened by English fears of the Scots, connected, of course, to the plot surrounding Mary, Queen of Scots, and her English ambitions. In addition, the MacDonald chief, Sawley Boy, was closely connected to the Campbell Earl of Argyle in Scotland, a big supporter of Mary, Queen of Scots. The MacDonalds, in Antrim, as we mentioned last time, also had a firmly established colony at Rattlin Island, a staging post from the Western Isles of Scotland, and Ratland was described as the greatest enemy Ireland hath, the only succour of the Scots. So in 1575, Essex sent a force under John Norris, ferried there by Francis Drake, although Drake took no part in what followed. It is a feature, though, of the wars in Ireland that the English could always rely on one major advantage, the ability to use the sea freely. What followed was the surrender of the castle on the island, under terms that the constable and his family would be spared, the rest of the 200 defenders killed. Not a great deal, you might say, but Norris committed even worse butchery, killing as many as 400 of the other inhabitants, including women and children, hunted down even in caves where they hid. It is unlikely that Essex disapproved, writing of Sawley Boy watching with despair from the mainland. The massacre achieved no purpose but to add to the list of English atrocities in Ireland. Ratlin proved impossible to hold as a fortress. Essex's plantation was also at an end by 1575, also achieving nothing. It had not even been cheap, crossing the crown a whopping investment. You might hope that there would now be a pause in the violence, and to a degree there was, with the presidencies of Munster and Connacht at last beginning to be established. But there is more. Because, of course, to be effective, those new presidencies had to assert their authority, and that meant offending old power structures, undermining the likes of Desmond. Meanwhile, 
the English feared the strength of the Catholic Counter-Reformation and the potential that raised for invasion and continued to grow. Once again, here is living proof that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. On the edges of our story appears one Thomas Stukeley about who I might do a short bio sometime as the archetypical early modern soldier of fortune. He was a Devonian, and as we know, Devonians can be a wild bunch. He then went on to be a soldier in Berwick and on the Scottish borders. He accompanied Robert Dudley to see Henry II in France in 1551. He was also connected to the Somerset regime, which led him to fall foul of the Duke of Northumberland, and then he jumped ship to France, which turned out to have a useful result of allowing him to escape his creditors. This man is a card and an adventurer. He then fought for France and for Savoie, and came close to joining the French colony in Florida, and then turned up in an official mission to persuade Shane O'Neill to come to terms. Then he tried to join the Elizabethan adventurers in Ireland, but Elizabeth had his measure, especially after hearing that Stukeley had declared that he set not a fart for the Queen. So he was passed over in favour of the aforementioned Peter Carew. Proper blazing now, Stukeley found a new career as a Catholic convert and stalked the courts of Europe, hawking an invasion of Ireland idea. From 1570, he based himself in Spain, honoured by Philip II, who gave him a pension and awarded him the title of Duke of Ireland. Might I note this when we come to the question of whether the English provoked Spain to war in the 1580s. Finally, in 1578, Stukeley got himself an 800-tonne warship from Philip, stuffed with Catholic exiles. But in Lisbon, on the way, he was inveigled away from the enterprise of Ireland by a more shiny and exciting enterprise, a Portuguese attack on the Sultan of Morocco. However, the Moroccan cavalry put paid to the Portuguese attempt, and in the process, both Stukeley's legs were shot off by a cannon, and he died. Burley's considered, judicious and balanced opinion of Thomas was that he possessed the highest degree of vainglory, prodigality, falsehood and vile and filthy conversation of life, altogether without faith, conscience or religion. So there, take that, Stukas. However, Stukas was not the only rebellion down and out in London, Paris and Madrid. There was also our James Fitzmaurice of the Fitzgeralds, cousin of the Earl of Desmond, and, as we have heard, failed rebel. He and his family had set up shop in France in 1575 and lived at Saint-Malo, and twice met the King Henry II. But despite that, he felt no help to be coming from the French, so he took him to Rome, where Pope Gregory was more than happy to encourage a bit of bloodshed against the heretic, and offered a plenary indulgence and remission of their sins for all that helped them, and a papal banner, which would be a feature of the resulting campaign. In Spain, Philip was not supportive, but he did meet up with the Catholic firebrand and Anne Boleyn hater, Nicholas Sander. In Lisbon, they found a bunch of rebels wandering around asking, where's Thomas Stukeley got to? Anyone seen Thomas? and after hiring a ship of 700 brave souls, set out for Smerwick on the west coast of Ireland. Once there, 
Henry Davils, Constable of Dungarvin, and 19 others of his party were killed while they slept in Tralee, and for a month Fitzmaurice tried to recruit the Earl of Kildare, the Munster Lords Tulo, Lenich, O'Donnell and O'Rourke. He had money now also to recruit gallowglasses and declared that they were defending our country. Fitzmaurice overestimated his chances. While his rebellion might be seen in retrospect as the start of the anti-English sentiment that would eventually make English rule impossible, the focus was as much against Elizabeth as a pretended queen and heretic. As yet, most influential Irish leaders would go as far as expressing resentment against English rule, but no more than that. And the Catholic component of Fitzmaurice's rebellion rather founded on the lack of English religious repression at this stage. The violence of the rebels reflected the growth of the threat from the English. They timed their attack on Erin's Courty in County Wexford, for example, for the summer fair, so that they could make maximum impact and damage. Men were cut down in the streets by Fitzmaurice's rebels and women raped, bodies dumped in the river and the walls raised. The town of Ewell suffered a similar fate. Rather ignobly, Fitzmaurice was killed in August 1579 in a skirmish with the Burks of Clan William over some stolen horses. By now, English forces were gathering as well. The English Captain Morby led 2,000 soldiers and in October he defeated the rebel forces commanded by Fitzmaurice's half-brother. The defeat confined the rebellion to Munster, unless the Earl of Desmond could be persuaded to join. Which, early in 1580, he did, declaring that he fought for the Catholic faith and against the English who go about to overrun our country and make it their own. But the war began to acquire the flavour of the long-standing Fitzgerald-Butler rivalry instead, a bit of a major distraction. Desmond's local opponents sweeping off great herds of cattle and burning the ripening harvest. Many of Desmond's Irish supporters quickly deserted him. Where other Irish lords did rebel, their horizons stayed resolutely local. At Smerwick, however, a force arrived of 600 Spanish and Italian soldiers sent by the Pope. It was met by one of the most brutal of a crop of brutal English captains, the Lord Deputy Grey of Wilton. Grey was a Protestant fanatic, and when he saw the Catholic fanatics with their papal banner, it filled him with fury, which saw expression in yet another atrocity. When the garrison at Smerwick surrendered to Grey, all of them, under the white flag, were slaughtered. I am told that the phrase, Grey's faith, entered the language as an act of treacherous dishonesty. Elizabeth herself appears not to have balked at the horror Grey was in fact promoted to Viceroy. For Elizabeth and the English Privy Council, of course, probably more important than the papal banner was the fact that at Smerwick, the paranoia of foreign invasion through Ireland was made flesh, made reality. The horror was not yet over. By the time Desmond was murdered by a rival Irish sept in November 1583, he would have begun to see the violence English captains wreaked on Munster, with stocks of grain burned and cattle slaughtered, so that famine stalked the land and even spread as far as the Pale. And as a result, 
Munster was severely depopulated. The Desmond Revolt, although a failure, did leave a long-term legacy. Catholicism had been equated even more firmly with resistance, and a growing belief in the evil and illegitimacy of the English rule was seeded with the ideology of both Old English and Gaelic-Irish to defend this noble island, our dear country. In the short term, though, the depopulation of Munster would lead to more plantation. The plantation of Munster, a scheme particularly supported by Walsingham as well as the English Privy Council, for once the plantation looked as though it would be a success. By 1589, it could be that 3,000 English had settled there, helped, of course, by the attainder of Desmond, and therefore giving rise to less dispute to land title. 3,000, of course, dwarfs the other plantations so far, but still left to the new English, vastly outnumbered by Old English and Gaelic Irish. And the events of 1598 would prove that the new English had not, should we say, assimilated very well. Nonetheless, substantial numbers and substantial building and improvement took place. The accounts of the Welsh gentleman William Herbert, for example, who acquired 13,000 acres in Kerry, showed that he took over the Desmond House at Castle Island and lavishly converted it. He built mills and brew houses. An orchard was planted. Industry based on the felling of timber and the manufacture of horse harnesses took off, with furnaces built to smelt ore to produce ploughs. By the late 1580s, the sum total of all of this was that some progress had been made in the implementation of a shire system all over Ireland, the implementation of the presidencies in Connacht and Munster, and for a short while, stability appeared to have a chance. But despite the cancellation of martial law by Elizabeth in 1591, the damage from all these atrocities was already done. Some prosperity returned to Connacht under the governorship of the controversial Richard Bingham, but at the price of both the massacre of Scots mercenaries at the Battle of Ardnery and the constant interference in the lives of the Gaelic Irish. Although the English in Ulster profited still from the support of Hugh O'Neill, the attempted poisoning of Shane O'Neill, the murder of Brian O'Phelan, and numerous injustices and betrayals by the English, real and imagined, led to deep resentment and anger. The brutal actions of English captains had created an escalation of violence, from the Irish as well as the New English. All in all, English rule in Ireland was beginning to have an uncomfortable parallel with the rule of the Spanish in the Netherlands, and the plantations and violence were sowing the seeds of a new Irish nationhood. Into this would come a transformation of the situation in Ulster and the career of Hugh O'Neill. Right, that is enough for now. Telling the story of the history of Ireland is for an Englishman not a pleasant job. Just have to square your shoulders, keep a straight back, take it on the chin. Any more clichés, gratefully accepted. We'll come back to Hugh O'Neill in due course, but next time I'll try to think of something happier, like, oh, I don't know, eating my own liver with katsu sauce or something like that. Anyway, some happier topic, since we are, of course, approaching the festive season, and so happiness is the order of the day. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Thank you for all your comments. I greatly appreciate them. 
And don't forget the History of England shop. And don't forget the History of Egypt podcast. Anyway, I will see you all next time. Good luck, everyone. Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 